Well, I guess I mentioned the one I heard from this group of different scientists, the scenario that's exactly what happened now, a virus coming out of a bat in a wet market in, or, or associated with a wet market in China, a coronavirus in particular, um, and one with uh, the capacity to spread um, a virus before uh, cases are showing symptoms. All of that is in is in my book. Not because I could see the future, but because these people were talking to me about these things. These were the most likely elements of a scenario. You are listening to the Real Leaders podcast, and that message was from David Quammen, a traveling scientific writer who wrote the thriller Spillover: Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. What's so great about it is he wrote that book eight years ago where scientists predicted what would be happening right now. So what comes next? When will this quarantine end? How does climate change impact the spread of viral diseases? And who is at the top of the food chain? Those questions answered on this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. Enjoy. With those who are. Yeah, same. No doubt. All right, David, we'll get started here if you're ready. Sure. All right. Here we go in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Here today to talk about animal infections and pandemics is traveling scientific writer David Quammen. David, thanks for being with us today. Kevin, good to be with you. So, David, uh, I'm curious. You know, most people catch the, the travel bug. But it appears you're you're kind of searching for them, aren't you? What is the lifestyle of a traveling uh, writer? And uh, how well, did you I've get been inspired? traveling. Yeah, I've been traveling to do journalism and research books for a long time. Um, and uh, it's not that I love to travel; it's that I love to be in strange places, remote places, tropical forests, jungles, swamps, mountaintops, uh, uh, corners of Romania or uh, uh, downtown Singapore or whatever. I go where the stories are, uh, and usually for me, the stories are science related to biology, life sciences, and in a lot of cases, that's field biology. Uh, ecology and evolutionary biology and that has taken me into a lot of strange wild places walking across the congo and climbing through uh bat caves in southern china and uh, rooftops um, of derelict warehouses in bangladesh um, and uh, you know tasmania and romania and madagascar etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, I go there not because I love sitting on airplanes, but because I love being out there in wild places and telling stories of the people who do interesting science. So what exactly? So the people, are you looking for the people and in, in trying to uncover what research they're unveiling? What specifically yes. are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for I'm looking for um, for scientific facts, uh, scientific explanations, um, uh the meaning of how ecological systems work, uh, evolutionary biology and its intricacies, but science is done by people. So when you write about science, it, your audience is going to be people. And you want to make it interesting, you want to make it a story, then you write about people. Mm. So I love science. I love some of the intricate details, but if you want to write about science so that people read it, then tell stories of people doing science. 
So your book, uh, written in 2012 for our folks listening to this audio, uh, David wrote the book Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic back in 2012. Why did you write about that? I got interested in this whole subject of scary emerging viruses and other pathogens that come out of animals uh, 20 or 25 years ago when I started reading about Ebola. Ebola virus in Africa. Uh, and at first it was terrifying and spooky. And the more I read about it, uh, the more interested I got. And then I did uh, a lot of work in Africa for National Geographic, walking across um, forest areas. Uh, I did one series of stories about a great um, expedition of uh, a conservation scientist and biologist named Mike Fay walked. 2,000 miles across the last remaining forests of the Congo and the Ogwe basins. And I was sent to walk stretches of that with him for weeks at a time and write three stories. And at one point, we spent 10 days walking through Ebola habitat. And we knew it was Ebola habitat because there had been an Ebola outbreak on the edge of that forest block where people in a village had suffered and died terribly. So we knew Ebola was there in the forest somewhere. I had read enough about the way these viruses work to know that it had to be in an animal of some sort, had to have a host, a natural host that it lives in, um, because viruses can only replicate themselves in the cells of other living creatures. So we knew that there was an animal around us somewhere that was carrying Ebola, but we didn't know which animal because the reservoir host hadn't been discovered. So that focused my brain. We wanted to make sure that, um, you know, we didn't touch any dead animals, that we didn't throw any dead animals into the stew pot at the end of the day. Um, And it made me very curious about the question of where does Ebola live? What's the reservoir host? And that, I realized quickly, was a matter of ecology and evolutionary biology. And ecology and evolutionary biology, by that time, were my wheelhouse. That was That was what I was interested in. So suddenly I realized that that's what defines this phenomenon, viruses that spill over from animals and get into people and adapt and move around the world as pandemics. It's ecology and evolutionary biology. And when I realized that, I said, well, I got to write a book about it. So then I I started traveling some more and, and, uh, and that led to spillover. So maybe let's just break this down for the average person listening to the podcast. What is yeah. uh, like a, a zoonosis and like what's yes, the goal okay. of a virus? Right. right, Kevin, let's do the ABCs, okay? So um, viruses have to live somewhere, as I said, um, and many of them live in animals. And some of them pass from non-human animals into humans, Um, because of contact, because of opportunity. Somebody kills an animal and is butchering it and and a virus gets into them. That moment is called spillover, hence the title of my book. When a virus passes from its first, from its non-human host into its first human victim, its first human case, that's spillover. Now, if the virus takes hold there, um, then that is a zoonosis, a virus that has passed from a non-human animal into a human. That is a zoonosis. Mm, If it causes disease, if it replicates in the human and uh, transmits from one human to another, that disease is called a zoonotic disease. So is this a a strange, weird fringe branch of medicine? No. 60% of human infectious diseases are zoonotic diseases. 60% in the strict sense. And the rest of them, in a broader sense, 
because we're a relatively young species. So all of our inf infections had to come from somewhere. So some of the ancient um, plagues that you read about, the bubonic plague in the 14th century, that's a zoonotic disease. Bubonic plague is a zoonotic disease. It's caused by a bacterium that lives in rodents and it's carried from rodents to humans by fleas that bite humans. So in the 14th century, you've got zoonotic spillovers leading to zoonotic disease. In, in our time, you've got a whole series of these things happening, um, coming out of animals and getting into humans with increasing frequency. So it's a big problem and it's a very urgent problem. I say in the book, um, zoonosis, it sounds a little bit technical, but it's a word for the 21st century. It's a word that you're all going to hear more of and you may as well get familiar with. So let's let's talk about the coronavirus right now. I've heard it came from a bat. Like, can you maybe break down how it spilled over into a human? Yes, we don't know exactly. We have very good evidence that this virus did come from a bat, particular kind of bat in China. How do we know that? Um, once they found this virus in its first victims in the city of Wuhan, um, they, they, they grew the virus and they sequenced its genome. So now, now they've got the sequence of the genome and they compare that to other things. And they, they notice scientific scientists, uh, science, Chinese, Chinese scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, noticed that they had identified a virus five years earlier with the same genome. They had found it in bats in a cave in the province of Yunnan, hmm. um, some distance away from the city of Wuhan, different, different province. But there it is. It's the same virus. The, the genome matches almost exactly. So on that basis, they can say this new virus had to come from a bat. Uh, it didn't come from a weapons lab. It came from nature. It came from a bat because the genomes match. How did it come from a bat into humans? Uh, we, we know this only by hypothesis and inference. Um, there were 41 cases in the first wave of sickness in Wuhan. And of those 41 cases, most of them were associated with, most of them were in people who, who were associated with this particular market, this seafood market that also sold wild animals, live wild animals, as well as domestic animals, all for food all jumbled together in cages, you know, spilling feathers and scales and, and poop and urine upon one another. So the fact that most of the early cases were associated with this market, people said, what comes from that market? Somebody brought a bat to that market and either that bat infected people or that bat infected a pig that infected people or that bat maybe infected a pangolin, a wild animal or a civet and that infected people. However, to complicate things further, most cases were associated, but not all cases were associated with that market. There were 14 other cases uh, where the people had no history of going anywhere near that market, yet they had the virus, including some of the earliest to get infected. So what happened? We don't know, but it seems that that virus came to the city of Wuhan, almost certainly in a bat that somebody was bringing probably to a market, but maybe it infected some people before it ever got anywhere near that market. Maybe the guy who was bringing it got infected and uh, infected his wife, and his wife ended up in the hospital as one of the very first cases, and she had never gone anywhere near the market. It's a mystery, uh, and it would be nice to know more about it, but that's, that's as much as we know. 
but you, you're able to break down to a molecular level or, or DNA level that it, it had come from a bat, though, right? Yes. We just, yes. And we actually, just don't know if it's come from right. the market or not. It's, okay. We know from the genome. It's actually not DNA. It's RNA. It's RNA. the other genetic mole- molecule uh, because coronaviruses have, have genomes that consist of RNA. Right. And they inject the RNA to take over the nucleus of cells. And that's how they go into it. They go into a cell. They don't even have to go into the nucleus, but they go into a cell and they hijack uh, the cell machinery and uh, and they use it to produce copies of themselves. And then they bust out of that cell and they go into another cell and, you know, multiply themselves. I don't know, 100 to one each time they infect a cell. So, David, here's the question, then. Uh, Who's at the top of the food chain? You mean uh, us or the virus? Yeah. That's what you're thinking, Kevin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, it does become, and it's almost a philosophical question and not an ecological question. Hmm. Um, that virus now that got into people in Wuhan is currently one of the world's most successful viruses. Probably up there with HIV, um, M group, HIV 1 group M which is the pandemic strain of the HIV virus, the one that's killed 33 million people around the world. It's one strain of virus that came out of one chimpanzee and got into one human in the southeastern corner of Cameroon. Now we're talking about AIDS, HIV, came out of one chimpanzee and got into one human in the southeastern corner of Cameroon in Central Africa back around 1908 give or take a margin of error. I talk Mm. about this in my book. I got a hundred pages on that. It's a very different story from what most people think they know about the beginnings of the AIDS pandemic. So maybe expand on that around the question of why, because there's been thrown around a lot lately is, well, this virus, it's not killing as many people as, you know, H1N1, you know, it's, it's not uh, affecting young adults. Why should I be so scared? But what you're saying is, with this HIV and for doctors and researchers that need to study these things, had we had taken some preventative measures, learned about this back in 1908, maybe we would have a different uh, result. Yeah, of course, we didn't have the science. We didn't have the tools in 1908. And this thing got into humans by roughly the, the way I described. We don't know who the real patient zero was. Probably was some man in the southeastern corner of Cameroon who uh, killed a chimpanzee and butchered it for meat and um, had cuts on his arms or something and got some chimpanzee blood into a cut. And he became the real patient zero. And then slowly he passed it along to other people. And it, it, it just sort of smoldered until and got to the big cities, Brazzaville and Leopoldville, big cities of the Congo on the river in those days. And then eventually, um, reached more and more people there and and eventually exploded out to the rest of the world in the 1960s. Uh, But back to coronavirus, this coronavirus, some people say, well, you know, it uh, what you said, oh, it's uh, uh, it's only, uh, you know, maybe it's no worse than a flu. Donald Trump has said that now he's reversed his song on that. it's um, it's much worse than a flu because it kills roughly 20 times um, the rate that seasonal flu does. It spreads. It seems to spread as easily as seasonal flu, but the case fatality rate is running at least 20 times greater for this thing. There are some flus that are really dangerous flus like bird flu. I think it's 
Is it H5N1? That's the bird flu. Uh, anyway, there's some flus that kill more people, but they don't transmit as well. Hmm. And then most other flus transmit really well, but don't kill nearly as many people. The numbers add up with flu. Um, you hear about you know 35,000 people dying of flu uh, in the U.S., 60,000 people in a bad year. Those are huge numbers. But the numbers from this are going to be much huger because if it spreads as well as a seasonal flu and it kills at 20 times the rate, then we're not going to be talking about 60,000 people. We're going to be talking about, you know, um, what, 1.2 million people? Is that Ooh. is that 20 times 60,000? Uh, I'm not going to attempt uh, <laughs> to get on that right now uh, or embarrass myself. Uh, but I think there's something to be said, though. Uh, now, the question for you is, can you eradicate a virus? Yeah, can you eradicate a virus? Well, if the virus lives in animals, non-human animals, as well as humans, then you can't eradicate the virus unless you eradicate it from all those non-human animals. I talked about the reservoir host where Ebola goes to hide when it's not killing humans. Uh, as of now, we think that there are no active cases of human Ebola on planet Earth, because uh, the, the people working so hard to stop the outbreak in Eastern Congo believe, as of today, I think, uh, that if the fire is out, they have to wait for a certain period to confirm that. But when we have no human cases of Ebola, where is Ebola virus? It's hiding in its reservoir host in some animal in the forest, right? So that's the thing about zoonotic diseases. They come from animals and they continue to live in animals, so you can't ever exterminate them unless you either cure all the non-human host or eradicate the non-human host. So do we want to eradicate bats because this come from, comes from bats? No, that's not the point. That's a terrible idea because bats are wonderful creatures and they're also very important. They play roles in our ecosystem. So we need bats. We want bats. Are we ever going to be able to get rid of this virus from the human population? Probably not. Probably not. Um, there's another example, smallpox. You hear about smallpox being eradicated from the human population. Great, great victory. What is it that makes smallpox special? It's one of our rare infectious diseases that is not a zoonotic disease. There is no animal host for mm. smallpox. So when we get it all eliminated from everybody on Earth, and it only lives in a few little bottles in research laboratories, otherwise it's eliminated from humans, we know that it's gone. It's not hiding any animal, hiding in any animals because it's not a zoonotic virus. Likewise, polio is not a zoonotic virus. So if we can finally eradicate polio from humans, it's gone. Right. This virus is always going to be living in bats as long as we have bats. And it's always going to be living in humans, I think, circulating through us. But um, I believe we'll get a vaccine. So we'll be able to protect populations of people who are willing to be vaccinated, they will be protected from us. We'll, we'll vaccinate generations of people against this virus. There will remain some pockets where people don't get vaccinated, either because of political or religious stubbornness, or they're too remote, or, or some people even in, in, you know, in the U.S. just refuse to let their kids be vaccinated. So those, those individuals will always be susceptible to this virus. And it can potentially bounce back and flare up and maybe kill a few people and make a bunch of people sick. And then that outbreak 
will end or it'll be controlled, but the virus will probably still be living somewhere else. It it's the the talk right now I'm hearing is everyone saying, oh, like this makes me realize how interconnected we are. And I, I almost think that's people are forgetting to include animals in this as well, that oh, yeah. we are more interconnected to animals. Now, you mentioned uh, biodiversity. You mentioned we can't kill off bats. We we have to um, affect. We can't effectively eradicate something like this because we don't want to kill off food chains or anything like that. What does this do to impact uh, the the food chain? And what is biodiversity's role in uh, infectious diseases? Okay, here's here's the dynamics, uh, and it goes to the basic causes of these spillovers of new zoonotic diseases. Um, We've got a lot of wild animals in living in our highly diverse ecosystems, all these amazing, wonderful different species, bats and monkeys and um, porcupines and, and different kinds of rodent, all these creatures, and they all carry viruses. They all carry viruses, and in many cases that are unique to that species or to that group of species. And they probably don't carry just one virus, they carry a number of viruses. Most of those viruses, plants also carry viruses. Fungi carry viruses. Bacteria carry have their own viruses. Viruses, you know, you asked who's on top of the food chain. You, you could also ask what's the dominant life form on the planet? Is it is it Homo sapiens or is it viruses? Hmm. They are extremely abundant and ubiquitous, living in all kinds of cellular creatures. You go into a wild ecosystem and you start cutting down the trees and building timber camps and building mining camps and catching the animals or killing the animals to feed the miners or the, the, the timber workers. And um, you, uh, you come in contact with those viruses. You offer the viruses that those animals carry an opportunity to jump hosts, like jumping from a sinking lifeboat into um, a comfortable ship. When they jump from an animal that you're killing, a species that's endangered, and their virus jumps into a human's, then that um, that virus has has won the sweepstakes to to mix metaphors, uh, because if it can transmit through humans, then it's got a whole world of opportunity right ahead of it. Uh, so that's what happens: disruption of ecosystems, contact with wild animals, invites viruses to jump from those animals and become. Uh, adapted to being our viruses. That's what causes these zoonotic spillovers. And if we're unlucky in each case, a zoonotic spillover turns into an epidemic and the epidemic turns into a pandemic. If we're really unlucky, it turns into something like this. Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, what is the dominant life form? Uh, bacteria, how do they evolve and mutate during different times? Why do they jump and spill over? Um, I've read this theory that climate change uh, is impacting uh, or is basically making us more prone to infectious diseases. Uh, we talked about uh, biodiversity, obviously mm-hmm. humans' uh, external impact on yeah. Uh, yeah. biodiversity loss right now. Um, uh, ice acts as a frozen ledger for um, just all of life. And it basically you can, what's frozen inside there are many diseases. Uh, yeah. If permafrost unfreezes, uh, animals like a 
like an, a reindeer has been left out and a boy was killed. 20 people were killed because anthrax came from the reindeer onto people. Right. What is your uh, experience into um, studying climate change and its impact on uh, infectious diseases? Yes. Well, it's a good question. It's an important question. And I'm hearing it too. Um, uh, and and so I say a couple of things about it. First of all, I have never specifically researched climate change, but I follow it like any citizen follows it. Hugely important question. One of the two or three biggest problems we face. It's not the only problem, but climate change caused by humans and um, zoonotic spillover of diseases have the same fundamental causes. So they're like parallel. Some people say, does climate change cause zoonotic spillover and pandemic? And I usually say, uh, no, that's not what causes it. But the basic things that cause both of them are the same things. Disruption of wild ecosystems, consumption of the rest of the natural world by us. The things that we eat, the things that we want to consume, the energy that we want to consume, the fact that we are this dominant species, we're so smart, and we're so hungry that we're consuming all kinds of things, food and energy on this planet, and we're traveling around faster than ever. Um, so those are the causes of zoonotic spillover, and those are also the causes of climate change. Now, the, the, the idea that you, um, that you mentioned that um, when our, um, our northern, our permafrost um, starts to thaw, because of climate change, is that going to revivify, awaken dangerous viruses that have been frozen up there? Um, it's possible. I think part of that is people have heard the story of um, some some victims that died of the 1918 influenza and they were buried in the permafrost. And scientists, including a fellow named Jeffrey Taubenberg, and a very interesting scientist, uh, was involved in um, essentially uh, reconstructing the 1918 influenza virus mm. to learn more about it and doing that by taking samples from these people who, who were buried in 1918 in the permafrost. Um, so that gives people the idea that there are dangerous viruses buried in the permafrost and there might be, but to me, it's, um, it's not an, uh, it's not an important possibility because we've got so many other viruses that are, that are living right now in all of the animals in our existing ecosystem. So yeah, maybe there are a few things that are dangerous that are buried in a, you know, you know, in a woolly mammoth um, in Northern Greenland somewhere. And who thought out, um, you know, a virus could come out of it and infect humans. To me, that's a, that's a movie scenario. That's mm. the kind of story that people want to think this would be really dramatic. Meanwhile, we got people uh, hunting bats and, and monkeys and rodents in our wild uh, places, in our forests, and those are all carrying viruses. So it's a matter of proportion. I think that um, you can worry about the, um, the permafrost viruses if you want to, but there's, there's millions of viruses that are, are much closer around us right I now. I've seen that example of the Spanish flu. I think that was in Alaska as well. And, yes, it was. You're right. And uh, I also uh, read about, now we talk about bacteria. This is a little bit separate than viruses, but 99% um, of bacteria inside of us are unknown to science. Like I, I read right. that as a stat. And, you know, can a degree shift in temperature increase uh, mutations and uh, its its deadliness? And the example I give is a mega death scenario with, I don't know if it's pronounced saga antelope or Sega antelope. Oh, I know um, what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you heard, heard about it. that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for people listening to this for the first time, um, basically uh, these saga antelope in Kazakhstan, uh, about the size of Florida where they were living, they all just were pronounced dead in like a couple several days because of the climate. They, they say because of the climate temperature shift, which caused the bacteria in their tonsils to mutate and change and take over their livers and they just all died mm-hmm. randomly. So yeah. the question for you is, where was the funding in 2012 for for uh, pandemics and diseases and, and unknown circumstances like this? And where is the funding right now for a pandemic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been asking the same question of other people. I'm sure. Um, what happened? Uh, why were we so unprepared? Why didn't we have excess capacity to deal with this kind of thing? Why didn't we have test kits um, that could be developed very quickly to focus on a particular virus and identify uh, whether a person is positive or negative in the time that it takes to pass through airport security? Ten years ago, I was being told by a, a really, really smart and important scientist that his lab was working on that. And I thought, wow, that's great. And when I heard about this, I thought, okay, roll out the roll out the instant portable test kits and get them to the airport security point so that you take a swab from somebody's cheek and then she takes off her shoes and she pulls her computer out of her bag and she goes to the x-ray machine. By the time she puts it all together on the other side, you know whether she's positive or negative. That should be able to be done. Um, I think we have the science, but apparently we haven't had the development money for that. Why not? I don't know. Is it about the the issue of of, uh, corporations not seeing a profit stream in that? I don't know. But we should have that that health detection technology. Um, And that's just the beginning of it. Um, you know, we should have had that excess hospital capacity, the excess, you know, intensive care unit, the ventilators and all that. Um, we know that we have a national strategic stockpile of masks and gloves and gowns, and maybe there's some um, ventilators in there. Um, and I think it was Bill Clinton who um, was struck by the idea that we needed that. So there have been waves of, of, of our leaders in the U.S. over time saying, hey, you know, there might be a pandemic. I read a book. It's a little bit scary. Uh, why don't you guys go and do something? Create a stockpile of, of, of equipment or something, health protection equipment, personal protection equipment. Um, so things have been done. Things were done under Clinton. Things were done under George W. Things were done under Obama. Um, there always could have been more. But things were done. And then um, Trump came into office and things started to be undone. I don't want to get political. Sometimes I get political. I'm not going to get very political on this uh, podcast with you, Kevin. But um, but uh, there were there were efforts to reduce the CDC's budget each year. Congress protected the CDC as much as they could. Um, the CDC has lost a lot of very good people. Um, there was a there was a branch, a, a directorate within the National Security Council devoted to pandemic preparedness. That had been established under Obama. That was eliminated under Trump. I talked to the woman who led that branch, uh, and she was still shaking her head, wondering what happened. It seemed so unnecessary and so reckless. Um, so... Um, our leaders, some of them have been pretty good. Some of them are terrible. Uh, when you say, I'm going to spend X billion dollars on preparedness for a pandemic because I've got an advisor who told me I should, you have to take political risk, X billion dollars um, to get 
um, extensive pandemic preparedness into place. Okay, and uh, what happens? Uh, and that's for something that that might happen, but maybe it won't happen. Maybe it will. Um, I come to the end of my presidential term. I've spent X billion dollars on this. The pandemic hasn't happened. Now I've got people criticizing me for having wasted that money as I run for re-election. So there's there's political risk in spending a lot of money on preparedness for something that might well happen. And if it does, it's going to be disastrous. But maybe it won't happen in the next four years. Maybe it'll take five years or six years. Uh, I think that's a big part of the problem. Uh, like, of course, yeah. of course, X billion dollars is chump change compared to what uh, this thing is costing us now. And maybe just talk a little bit about the people who are in the weeds, the, the doctors, the researchers, the scientists who are trying to figure out these diseases, what their lifestyle is like as well. Yes. Well, I write about them a lot in Spillover. Um, I follow them around. It's a whole a whole profession, a whole new guild of scientists devoted to the subject of zoonotic diseases and their effects on um, on human health. Um, these are people, men and women, who have generally training in a couple of different branches of, nat- of natural science. Maybe they've got a degree in veterinary medicine and a PhD in ecology, or they've got a PhD in ecology and a master's in public health, and then maybe an MD or a degree in virology, combinations of those things. It gives them these special skills to be able to go out when there's a new virus. Uh, a new virus is killing people in Northern Malaysia and it's not anything we've ever seen before. So then these detectives go out. Some of them are from the CDC. Some of them are from private organizations like EcoHealth Alliance in New York. They're brave and they're very curious and they care about animals. And they care about people. So they go out there into the forest and um, do detective work. Maybe it involves catching animals, trying to find this particular virus that's been isolated from sick humans. So there it is. We've got the virus. We've got its genome. We don't know where it came from. They have to go out and find a match for it in the wild and, and, and identify its natural host, its reservoir host, and then try and figure out how did it go from that reservoir host into humans to cause this outbreak, this pandemic. They're great people. Now, in these regions, uh, I I, want to make sure that our audience understands, like in Africa and and say in the Congo, like people have been dealing with viruses for a long time. How are their measures different than ours right now? Obviously, we're staying inside. We're practicing Mm -hmm. social distancing. Mm -hmm. What are the measures that they are taking if they are? Yeah, well, um, you're right that, uh, you know, people in, um, uh, in say, sub-Saharan Africa um, living um, in or near the forest are adjacent to great biological diversity, and they've been exposed to lots of viruses for a long time. Probably, you know, we, we first became aware of Ebola in 1976 because it started um, killing people in one village in the Democratic Republic of Congo called Yambuku at a mission hospital there. In 1976, and, and a fellow that I know, the great Carl Johnson, led the team that went there and they identified this virus uh, and uh, they named it after a local river, the Ebola River. 
But that probably wasn't the first time that Ebola spilled over into people in Africa. You know, people who, who live in little villages in Africa adjacent to the forest have very hard lives uh, and they die young in a lot of cases. Malaria kills a lot of their children while they're still young. Um, it's And they have very little in the way of healthcare uh, facilities. In this case, there was this mission run by, I think it was run by Belgian nuns, Yambuku Mission. That was their healthcare service. Hmm. But um, very little in the way of material. People started coming in there with Ebola. Uh, nobody knew what it was. Uh, they had these terrible fevers. They had other symptoms. Uh, if I recall the story correctly, um, the, the nuns thought they must have malaria. So they injected them with anti-malarial drugs, but they only had so many needles. So they had to reuse the needles Ooh. and that helped to move the Ebola from one person to another. Carl Johnson went in there uh, with his team and they, they figured this out. Um, so it's a hard life. It's a hard life for these people. And yes, they come into contact with wild animals because in some cases um, they trap or shoot, uh, kill and eat wild animals. Um, we tend to demonize that with a um, with sort of an onerous term. We call it bushmeat. And that, you know, it usually is with scare quotes around it or should have scare quotes around it. I live in Montana. We kill and eat wild animals, too. I don't. But my buddies do. A lot of people I know hunt deer and elk every year and eat eat that meat. Um, so it's not a morally um, clear line between people who eat bushmeat in Africa and people who eat wild game in Montana. But it has potential great impact in terms of human health. It depends on the diversity of the ecosystem, the number of viruses there, the scale of the uh, of the disruption of the, the killing of wild animals, and also to some extent, the connectedness of the people. So to get back to the people in, in Ebola territory, uh, they probably have been experiencing small Ebola outbreaks for centuries, mm. coming in contact with the Ebola reservoir. Now it's suspected to be a, a, a type of bat. Um, coming in contact with that, maybe killing it to eat it, uh, or, um, or, or just having it near them, perhaps having it um, roost in trees over places where they keep their, um, their pigs, uh, something like that. Um, but you know, 100, 200 years ago, if Ebola struck a little African village, the world would never know about it. They just know that, oh, you know, you know um, 25 people out of 40 in this village died of a horrible fever. And um, and uh, the, the remaining villagers just try survived by staying away from them. In some cases, you hear the story that the, the approach to um, treating this was that if you've got a relative uh, who... Um, is affected by this mystery disease, Ebola, known to be so dangerous, then you put that person in a hut with a bed, and every day you bring food and water, <clears throat> put it, push it through the door of the hut, um, and you do that for 15 or 20 days, and then either the person walks out healthy or you burn the hut. Oh, God, yeah, good luck. Jeez. That's that's the old-fashioned healthcare. Not that that's well, what everybody did, but that's that's one scenario of what apparently was done in certain places, and and that would have worked. That would have worked. It's it, it might sound cruel, um, but that was their form of social distancing. 
Well, David, you bring up testing kits. Uh, why don't we just get testing kits so I can scan you and you're, you're either positive or negative with this. It seems like we're still treating this or uh, this spread or preventing preventing this spread with, uh, you know, archaic ways. Let's all stay inside. <laughs> let's let's social distance yeah. from each other. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we're, I, we're still yeah. we're still working. We're still working to um, develop really effective testing kits that can be produced in great quantity and that work quickly. You know, if, if you have to take a swab from somebody and then send it to a lab and wait two days for results, a lot of things can happen in two days. You don't know whether that person should be in self-quarantine. You don't know whether that person should be in an intensive care unit isolated from other people. Um, so testing is very important, especially at an early point in an, an outbreak or a pandemic like this, when you feel like you can identify cases, this person is infected. Um, and he has had contact with these 15 people in the last week. So we're going to check these 15 people. We're going to monitor their health every day. We're going to ask them to self-quarantine, and we're going to see if any of them get sick. And if so, we're going to isolate that person. You're dealing with with relatively um, workable numbers. But if the if the the infection has already come in and it's gone throughout um, northern Italy, or it's gone throughout the city of Seattle, even before that you know it exists, because this virus can do that. It can pass from people who aren't showing symptoms. Then you've got not an infinite number of people, but you've got too many possible connections to even trace. At that point, what's the value of testing? Even if you test everybody, you still need social isolation. You still need social distancing because if you don't have social distancing, and I test you today, Kevin tests negative, Great. So now Kevin is going to mix with people, go to the grocery store and and go to a bar. And tomorrow, is he still going to test negative? We don't know. You know, that's just a snapshot. At this one moment in time, you test negative. But that doesn't mean that two days from now, you might not have been exposed to the virus. Uh, Really quick. Mass. Are those preventive? Do those work? Um, the, the thinking has been changing the, the experts that I listen to, um, changing a little, maybe not changing drastically. Um, generally, um, the experts that I trust have been saying all along that masks are for sick people. Masks should be worn by sick people, uh, as a courtesy to the rest of the population to hold in mm. their coughs, their virus. But if you're just walking through an airport and you're wearing a mask to protect yourself, it's probably pointless. It's probably not very effective. That's what they were saying a couple of months ago. And of course, That's our healthcare people, too. yeah, our healthcare people need these. Our right. healthcare, because they're constantly being in the presence of this, these vi- this virus. Um, now I'm hearing that that might be something that even Tony Fauci is rethinking. I want to follow that up tonight and see if there's anything new on it. But the, the notion that maybe more people should be wearing masks or when we stop our social distancing, we should maybe wear masks. It's still sort of a form of social distancing. Ah. Um, I don't know. These, um, these little, uh, the, the surgical masks, the little cloth surgical masks, just loop over your ears. Um, they're not uh, very effective at keeping things out. They are reasonably effective at keeping things in. 
Got it. So the notion that everybody's going to wear a surgical mask, uh, I don't see that as being a big solution. The notion that everybody's going to wear a more effective mask, an N95 mask, we've all been hearing about those. Uh, I just don't know, Kevin. I don't I don't see so- where that but you're you're suggesting that by if people more people are wearing masks it might do more for the behavior change aspect of social distancing and yeah, yeah, measures yeah i mean it's one way of reminding people reminding people you know, yeah just stay the heck away now david i i don't want to be naive to also think that this can't happen relatively soon again i mean you wrote this book uh, spillover animal infections and the next human pandemic in 2012 you've mm-hmm. also mentioned uh the hunting lifestyle in montana in minnesota like 58 percent of moose uh were depleted because of a, a tick uh, now we have Lyme's disease. Uh, we have different, you mentioned white-tailed deers. Um, a lot of animals uh, are hosts for future virus. Um, how soon do you think another pandemic can incur- occur? Um, and do you think it's um, likely that another one will occur in the next 10 years? Well, the answer to the second question is, um, I think it's very, very possible that another one will occur relatively soon. Mm. Uh, because this, these circumstances still exist. Um, when we get this one under control, whether that's six months from now or a year from now, uh, and we should celebrate for five minutes and then start planning for the next one because there will be a next one. It's not possible to say, oh, it'll be probably be within five years or even to say that it will be within 10 years. We might go longer than that, but there, but another one is coming. There will be more of these things. This is not an isolated event. This is not a great misfortune, the black swan that can only happen to, you know, once in a century. This is, um, this is a, a symptom of how human beings are living on planet Earth right now. Um, and as, we, as long as we continue living that way, there'll be more of these. Hold on one second, David. You just said six months to a year. It's April right now. You're, you're saying that this might not be over. We'll still be in our homes in October? I'm not saying that, but, um, but it's possible. I don't think I don't think we'll still be self-isolating for six mm, months, but okay. it but it may be six months. I mean, you know, people talk about flattening the curve, flatten the curve, so that it's this this infection is moving more slowly through our communities, um, and our healthcare systems can keep up with it without being overwhelmed and having to triage people and things like yeah. that. So if we flatten the curve with good social distancing and tr- great healthcare, meanwhile people are working on a vaccine. Meanwhile people are working on therapies. The vaccine is not going to be with us probably for a year. Hmm. Um, But in six months to a year, I hope that we'll um, be starting to go back to normal. I don't want to sound like Donald Trump saying that we'll, you know, we'll all be in the pews for Easter Sunday services. Um, But um, six months to a year, I would hope that we would be, um, we would be through the worst of the awfulness by that time. There's no guarantee of that. Uh, and then there's also the danger, and you've heard about this, I'm sure, Kevin, is that if we uh, if we celebrate too quickly, you know, if um, a month from now, the infection rates have flattened out uh, and the death rates have flattened out or even are going down, and we say, wahoo, we're past the worst of it, take off the masks, forget the social distancing, go back to uh, life as normal, then there's a a good chance we'll be hit with the second wave. Right. 
Right. And that's, that's the scary part, right? Is yeah. not knowing when this thing will be over. Right. Right. Um, right. But we've got some good people, Tony Fauci long before he? he got famous. For, what? Who's he? Who's Tony? Oh, oh, he's the guy, he's, he's the head of the, uh, um, the chief scientific advisor for the task force to, to, uh, okay. to Donald Trump, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He is the guy who is standing up a uh, small guy from Brooklyn or Queens with a wonderful accent glasses uh, he is the director of the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is part of the NIH. And he's been in that job 30 years. He's the real deal. He's a truth-telling expert. And he's getting to be one of America's you know, favorite doctors. Um, we can trust him. Uh, what he says at these press conferences, um, you can trust him. Um, and, and I think this is what he is saying. He's saying, first of all, beware of celebrating too soon, going back to normal, and then be getting hit with a second wave. Um, don't count on a vaccine for a year. Um, we have we have excellent people like him who are in these positions. And if they're just allowed to do what should have been done, well, we have to do different things than what should have been done in the beginning. We need, we're chasing this thing rather than, than holding this thing off right now. But uh, if we pay attention to the legitimate experts uh, and follow their advice, like Tony uh, Fauci, like Deborah, Dr. Deborah Burks, um, then we have a chance of getting a handle on this. Um, and, and the difference is going to be between horrible and awful. And we're shooting for awful and hoping that we don't go all the way to horrible. Now, David, looking back at your book, mm-hmm. what are some comparisons or some things that came true? Well, I guess I mentioned the one I heard from this group of different scientists, the scenario that's exactly what happened now, a virus coming out of a bat in a wet market in, or, or associated with a wet market in China, a coronavirus in particular, um, and one the with uh, the capacity to spread um, a virus before uh, cases are showing symptoms. All of that is in is in my book, not because I could see the future, but because these people were talking to me about these things. These were the most likely elements of a scenario. Um, so that's the composite scenario that uh, that I assembled in the book and from different sources. Um, none of it surprising. The only thing surprising is how unprepared we have been for it. Um, I guess that's that's uh, that's the main thing. I mean, the other thing that I say in the book is, you know, get used to the the term zoonotic disease because you're yeah. going to see more of that term in the 21st century. There's going to be more of these viruses coming out of wild animals, and it's going to be a big surprise to some people each time, but it's going to keep happening. And we need to restrict them to localized outbreaks rather than national epidemics and global pandemics. That means good science, fast detection, diagnostics, identification, work, working on the front to stop them before they spread throughout our communities. Now, David, you, you just mentioned, you know, I didn't have a crystal ball, but I was just listening to these scientists who told me that this would happen. Mm-hmm. I was just surprised that we weren't as prepared. Now, yeah. what is a mark of a good leader. What type of leadership do we need right now? You mentioned Tony Fauci. Uh, you, you met, you criticize some of our other public leaders. What is the leadership to you that is needed right now to make sure this thing does not happen again? I think, um, one of the first attributes of a, of a 
of a really good leader, a real leader, is that um, that leader is capable of seeing uh, reality as it is rather than seeing reality as he or she wants it to be. Mm. Um, seeing things that are uncomfortable and being willing to say things to the public that are uncomfortable, but that are that are necessary to the public. Um, and continuing to say things and exhibit um, leadership, uh, even when it's politically unpopular. And maybe it means you lose your job or you, or you get defeated in the, next, in the next election. At a certain point, you just don't care. You say this is more important. Tony Fauci is a good example. Um, there, people are, are, are placing office bets. Well, nobody's placing office bets because nobody's in an office anymore. Um, but um, I've seen that actually are, too, yeah. People are wondering, when will he be fired? When will Donald Trump get um, angry at him for for undoing the misleading things that Donald Trump says by explaining, well, okay, well, the president has a good point there, but actually uh, the real truth is about 180 degrees opposite to what he just said. But I'm going to say this in a very pleasant diplomatic way. Um, he's been doing this for 30 years. He's worked for six presidents. He's still speaking truth to power. He's still telling it as it is. Um, and he doesn't want to lose his job, not because he needs the job, but because he feels like he is a valuable servant of the public. Uh, I've met him. I don't know him well, but I've, I've met him and I've had a chance to talk with him. And he's a straight guy. Um, scientists all over the, all over the country um, have respected him long before he became uh, famous in this particular position. So, uh, so I know I nominate Tony Fauci for um, my favorite real leader of this year so far. Well, there you have it, folks. Fauci 2020 uh, office bets and get out your money. I'm throwing some on him. If yeah, David yeah. Quammen, uh, get in the pool. David, hey, I appreciate you coming on this show. You know, it's so uh, unique to have an individual like yourself uh, come on this show and, uh, you know, share your expertise, your knowledge, uh, and all the research that you've done, uh, you know, into 52 minutes. I hope we did you justice today. Uh, so just want to appreciate your time. Any, any last words for our audience today? Kevin, I thank you for the depth of your interest and the, the length of your curiosity. That's hugely important uh, for somebody doing what you're doing. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. And uh, we'll, we'll leave uh, the audience with the question at the end of the show, who is on top of the food chain? Uh, for David Quammen, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, see reality as it is. And maybe that's just another way to say always, folks, keep it real. Keep on keeping on, good people. If you're feeling stuck right now in this quarantine, well, the only remedy for that is movement. Get up, get outside, breathe in some fresh air, and keep it going. We need it. We need movement here now than ever. Hope you're not feeling stuck. Hope you're continuing the fight, continuing your progress and working on yourself and others. If you want something to help you sustain that success, well, today is your lucky day. Right now, you can go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and use coupon code PODCAST25 at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a one-year subscription, folks. That's four magazines for the price of three. Again, coupon code PODCAST25, all lowercase. And for the visual learners today, you want to watch this interview on your computer or TV with friends and family, make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel. It's at Real 
Leaders Magazine. Again, folks, on YouTube at Real Leaders Magazine. To see all of our interviews with guests who are harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Just want to thank you all again for being a real leader, staying inside, and staying tuned for the next episode of this podcast.